Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Alami podcast, Change Your Company. I'm very excited about our episode today. It's with Steve Dichter, who is a senior consultant and executive in the corporate world. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to be with us. Good to be with you, Fouad. I I would like to just mention a little bit of, about your background. You've been uh, or you had been in uh, McKinsey for 20 years uh, as a partner and senior partner, and you founded the Change Management Center in McKinsey. And yes. you also had a several several roles, uh, executive roles in the corporate world, in most of them in the in large organizations. Um, would you like to share with us a little bit about your background? Sure, I, that'd be great. So uh, I guess even as a kid, I was very fascinated with how do you get uh, large organizations, complex organizations to work consistently and effectively. I really don't know where that interest came from, but I was fortunate enough uh, at the early in my, after getting out of college to uh, go to the Harvard Business School and uh, really start to put some structure around that interest. Uh, so I did that. I was in at Harvard, graduated in 1979. And then uh, right after that, joined uh, McKinsey at a very formative uh, stage of McKinsey's. Uh, Could you please tell us a little bit about how was it to be in Harvard and uh, doing an MBA in Harvard? I think Harvard is uh, one who originated the MBA uh, degree and uh, it always has been like a uh, very prestigious and being in that environment during that time, how did it feel? How was it? Okay. Well, to be honest, it felt a bit strange. Uh, you know, I think everyone was, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, you know, but uh, because of the prestige that you mentioned, uh, you know, I think everyone was uh, very uh, proud to be there. And uh, there was a lot of arrogance, I would say. And I think there was change in the air, but Harvard hadn't quite figured out how to deal with it. So as you said, Harvard founded the MBA uh, program probably, I think, in the 1920s, I believe. Um, so it had been around about 50 years. And maybe the best way to answer your question is to tell you about an essay I wrote uh, for my, uh, I believe it was my fifth or 10th reunion where they ask you to uh, you know, put together a short essay that they publish in a book as part of the reunion process. And my essay was called, Why I'm Not Coming Back to Harvard. <laughs> uh, and I can still remember it to this day. And basically what I said was that, you know, it was a great privilege to be at Harvard. Uh, with all the resources and the uh, intellectual uh, capital and stimulation there. Mm -hmm. But at a time when it was very clear the world was changing, Harvard was actually teaching us to what I said uh, called worship the management gods of the past. Mm. I called out three issues at the time which I think will actually be a theme for this conversation, actually. Now that okay. Bring it up. And did you get any reply on that? Well, I did. But let me tell you what the three issues were. <laughs> yeah. uh, the three problems that I called out in terms of the Harvard education at the time was, 
that one, they looked at the CEO as a, only as a strategist. You know, the C, that was really the CEO's job was strategy. That was what was emphasized. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on organization development, culture, et cetera. Now, Harvard would debate that a bit. Yeah, when you say debated, debate you mean debated today or debated back then? Well, today they're definitely trying to change it. They would probably argue, oh, no, it was there in the background, you know, whatever. But t- yeah. believe me, yeah. it was all about strategy, okay? Right. The second thing they really emphasized uh, was, and I should say it was about strategy. Time was increasingly important. You know, the Japanese competition was in that, you know, there was something about organization and capability that was very important. The second thing was uh, that uh, it was all about survival of the fit, fittest. You know, the culture of Harvard was competition, individual competition, who could, quote, get the most airtime. You know, you there were 70 or 80 people in a classroom and everyone's fighting to get their view in. Um, and so it was at a time when teams were becoming more important, they were basically individual, creating a culture of individual. Yeah competition and survival. Mm-hmm. And the third thing that they were doing was basically arguing that the primary job of the CEO was to create shareholder value. Okay. Mm-hmm. So make the stock price go up. But this and was this was actually something among all business schools. I mean of course absolutely Harvard wasn't unique really, but yeah. it was certainly in the forefront and one of the most recognized as you said. Mm-hmm. So basically, they were the 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 the, the, the predominant themes of of, of, an H, of an MBA education at that time, as I said, were you know CEO as strategist, survival of the fittest, individual competition, and it's all about shareholder value. And this was at a time when it was clear the world was changing on all those dimensions. And so, to your question, so that was the essay I wrote, and. Uh, the business school hired the English department to edit all these essays and put it into a book, you know, that would be published for the reunion. So uh, long story short, uh, this woman uh, gave me a call and just said, I'm just, I'm just calling to tell you how much I loved your essay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'm actually more interested how my uh, classmates receive it. uh, Some liked it, some loved it. uh, And there you have it. But that I think best caps uh, captures what it was like to be at Harvard at the time. But, Great but, promise, yeah. but not responding to the change that was in the air. Yeah, okay. But I think, I mean, how come you had this already this thoughts uh, back then? Or is it like something that came to you afterward when you, when you went to the practical world? Well, I was a little bit frustrated there, but I didn't know why. Okay. So it, it always takes reflection. I'm looking on my shelf. I can't quite see it, but I think it was probably for my... 10th year reunion. Okay. Okay. okay yeah. So I had 10 years of reflection. I had 10 years into McKinsey. And so I think at that point, I was much better able to crystallize these issues. Okay. Yeah. Great. So talking about McKinsey, yeah. you got into McKinsey and how was it being a consultant and at the beginning of your career? How was it? Well, there's a common theme here. It was both exciting and frustrating. As I said a minute ago, 
actually there was change in the air at McKinsey when I joined. So one of my first assignments, if you could call it that, was in 1979. I had just joined. And this guy named Tom Peters was doing the research for the book In Search of Excellence. So my job uh, was uh, when he came to Boston uh, to drive him around, <laughs> you know, to, to give presentations to a few clients over the course of a couple of days. So I watched, and this was before the book was published. This was, so to, was promote the, to promote the book or to like for customer engagement? More for, we like to call them clients, but for client engagement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So more to test the hypotheses, the research, the findings that were coming out. And in search of excellence, the theme of it was, you know, it's uh, all about people, right? Uh, it was just, you know, strategy, uh, the great companies. Yes, of course, they have a strategy, but what really distinguishes them is the culture and the capabilities they develop. Was this sponsored by McKinsey? Was this sponsored by McKinsey or was, it was, was yes, it was sponsored by McKinsey, uh, and it became one of the best-selling uh, books, uh, business books of, of its time up to that date. Sold millions of copies, but that's a, that's a longer and different story. What I would say was that while it was sponsored by McKinsey, McKinsey really didn't know how to Benefit embrace it yeah. and use it. So within a couple of years, both Tom Peters and Bob Waterman, who was the other co-author, uh, had left McKinsey. So there was change in the air at McKinsey with uh, the Peters uh, and the In Search of Excellence research. And I had sensed a little bit at Harvard as well, as I said. So now I'm just a normal junior associate at McKinsey and uh, starting my career. And... Over the first four or five years, I was just a normal consultant doing reasonably well and on my way to being a partner. And but I was increasingly frustrated. And again, it took me a while. Well, so frustrated, in fact, that I quit. Uh, right before this becoming after five years, around five years, at the five year mark. Yeah. So I decided to quit. Uh, and interestingly enough, Marvin Bauer, the founder of McKinsey, uh, heard that I was going to quit and said, don't quit. Take a leave of absence. Think about it. We don't want to lose you. You're frustrated for the right reasons. I'll come back to that. And uh, so I took a leave of absence. And there's a little bit of a theme here. I reflected a bit. And uh I came back and basically got into uh, one of the founders of McKinsey's change management practice. But before I get to that, let me just explain why, what the source of the frustration is, again, with the benefit of, of some reflection. Before, I, before you, you talk about this, why do you think he, he asked you to, to take this leave? And so, I mean, for sure, maybe he knew you or something. So could you tell us or are you... We had never, well, we, we really had never had a substantive conversation until he took me out to lunch and said, tell me about your frustrations. Okay. And I did. And he said, we need you. You know, you shouldn't leave. So, you know, but needless to say, I was deeply touched. 
for a founder of, of an organization like this to be that open to new ideas and new ways of, it must be like he was really open. Yes, because he also was probably one of the most open people to change that I've ever met. And that's, oh, okay. and he was probably 80 years old at that point. Okay, wow. 80 or 85 years old. But here's the source of the frustration. For the first, again, as I said, four or five years, did a lot of studies, you know, was, quote, successful as by McKinsey standards. And what I noticed is the typical McKinsey engagement, as we called them, or project, always had a, a common structure to them. You know, basically, you put the team together, you know, maybe three smart MBAs, hopefully very smart MBAs, a couple partners. You work for three or four months. You know, you'd interview people, collect a lot of data, go to a conference room, and you'd produce a report. And then you'd get in front, you'd go to go to the client's office, hopefully a nice boardroom with you know all the coffee and water laid out very nicely. You'd have your three-piece suit on, maybe a two-piece suit. You'd get up in front of the client and you'd give your presentation. And this presentation, you know, was fairly formal and always had three parts. And I'll say about 40% of it was the diagnosis. You know, you have a big problem, you know, trying to get the, C the CEO's attention. Your costs are too high. You're losing market share. Your customer satisfaction is, you know, not what it needs to be. Your product development is too slow. You know, whatever it is. And what could be, and also the you know, potentially huge implications of this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the implication is, yeah, if you don't do something, yeah, you know, you're in trouble. You know, the second 40% of the presentation is you got to do a lot of change. You know, you got to change your structure. You know, you got to, you know, build, uh, invest in this area, stop investing in that area. So a lot of, let me call them major decisions of change. Okay. 40% is you got to do a lot of things differently. You got to make some decisions. And the last 20% was always next steps, they called it, you know. And, and that was, and maybe it was only 10%. You know, it was one page, maybe three pages. And it included uh, you know, build skills, change your culture, you know, and basically, you know, make it happen. And always a part of the next steps was implied either implicitly or explicitly was hire McKinsey to help you with these next steps. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I was very fascinated by this next steps, this 20%. Mm -hmm. The analysis, the diagnosis, what's your problem? And making a bunch of recommendations, that's easy. Exactly, yeah. Relatively. Yeah. You know, uh, because... You're working in a conference room. You have a lot of time to think and brainstorm, and you, know, you don't have to worry about doing it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the risk isn't on you. You're just going to make this great shiny presentation. All the risk, all the challenge, to me was in that last twenty percent. Exactly. So that's what fascinated me. I didn't think we were doing it that well for a lot of reasons, which we can get into later. So what I mean, what was happening in this ten or twenty percent? I mean, was it uh, kind of a, it's not happening, 
or it was not happening at a at the right level? Uh, what the was right level in the right way, right? Because to step back, what you have to understand is McKinsey is the grand priest, as I like to say, of the sort of expert consulting model. You know, basically, we diagnose, analyze, whatever, and we tell you what to do. That's what an expert does, okay? Um, and there, that's the expert consulting model. It's very different, and that's geared. There's a whole pyramid at McKinsey from these junior analysts and researchers up to the senior partner at the top, and they're all feeding that senior partner to be able to, you know, make that expert recommendation. Mm-hmm. Now, again, with the benefit of a lot of experience, hindsight, et cetera, and reflection, there's another model. It's called the facilitated model, mm-hmm. where you're much more working in partnership with the client, not just with the CEO, but at all levels of the organization, where you're bringing expertise, but you're equally respecting the expertise of the client, the customer, whoever else you're engaging with. And it's a much more facilitated process model of consulting. Mm-hmm. And that so you're was helping, very... So you are help, helping them in a way to to identify the issues and uh, come up with solutions even. Exactly, exactly. And as I say, and this is maybe a big theme of, uh, or takeaway from this discussion, is that management is, you know, learns this lesson again and again, that done appropriately, and we can come back to that, engaging and bringing people along. It may take a little bit longer to get there, but you're likely, if done properly, you'll get both better solutions and the capabilities, the will and skill to implement, and therefore better implementation. I mean, can you throw a little theory, if I can, into this? Exactly. That's what I wanted to ask you. Like, the, you okay. know, the, one of the first studies which was done about this right. at MIT. Yeah. At MIT was from two very famous names, and one of them is very surprising. Margaret Mead, who was a cultural anthropologist, famous for writing a book, I think, Life Among the Samoans, or something to that effect, uh, and Kurt Lewin, who is, I believe, an organization psychologist. They, during World War II, they did and then published a study that became known as the Iowa Housewives Study. And this study basically was done during the wartime era of constraints and rationing, not enough gasoline, not enough food and certain types of various other household goods. And so basically they went to Iowa and they created two groups of housewives. One group, they used the expert model. They had a bunch of home uh, economists and whatever come in and tell the housewives, given these constraints, what to do. do. Exactly. The other was a more facilitated model. Sit in a circle. Here's the data. Here's the problem. What do you think we should do? What do you think? Brainstorm ideas, test it, and whatever. And lo and behold, maybe a surprise, maybe not, depending on your, your, your philosophical bias, the facilitated group 
came up with better solutions and were more, more likely to implement, and that's the Iowa Housewife study. And management has been rediscovering that principle again and again over the years. For sure, yeah. Now, for a later podcast, you know, the facilitated model is not for everything, right? So there's never black and white, and that's kind of the PhD version, and maybe we'll do that at another time. For sure. But, you yeah. know, People can always come up with examples where that model won't work, and that's absolutely valid. So I, I want to be clear, it's not black and white, but a good leader has to know when the facilitated model is going to get you further or when the more expert, just do it model. Mm-hmm. So talking about McKinsey, talking about consultancy, what's one advice you have for consultants today? I mean, you 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 spend like a big portion of your career in the in the consultancy, and you you've been in this front line, which is about the execution, the implementation. So, what's one advice you have for consultants, junior, mid level, even senior, if they are open for this? Well, I think it would be just what we were talking about to. Given what the client situation problem context is, have an explicit discussion both internally and with the client. Does this require, where are you on the spectrum between a pure expert model? You know, we go away, we do research, we tell you the answer, Mr. CEO, versus a facilitated model. Mm-hmm. And you know, decide where you are on that spectrum, what the right mix is. It's rarely, you know, 100% one way or the other. And then structure yourself in terms of the team, the approach, et cetera, to execute consistent with that decision. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about change management. And uh, again, you founded, you founded the uh, McKinsey Change Management Center. And um, so why, why is change hard and why execution is hard when, when, when you have a great strategy, or at least this is when you, you, know, you, you develop it, uh, you see it this way, why, why is it hard to make it happen? Well, it isn't always hard. So we have to be clear what type of change we're talking about, right? Um, basically, Strategy, when you have new strategy, when it becomes difficult is when it requires a different set of skills, culture, operating system, lots of people to do lots of things differently. So there can be some type of change that is very much within the existing skills, capabilities of an organization. Mm -hmm. Right? So An example of that might be a company that's very strong, let's say, in one market or geography. B2B, for example. Yeah, B2B, you know, and they're basically going to extend their product to a new segment or a new country or whatever. It's well with, you know, there's always risks and it doesn't always work. You know, Mm -hmm. let me be clear of that. But a lot of times it does. Okay. So it's within your skills and capability. And so it may be, you know, take a lot of work. It may be difficult, but it's, it's going to happen. 
because it's within your existing skill set. But there's a lot more and more with the radical changes we've been seeing. It's not just in the last five years. Frankly, it's been the last 20 years with how technology has been changing, with how markets and competitors have been changing, with how the basis of competitive advantage have been changing, that companies do have to radically change many elements of their organization, skills, culture, system, processes, et cetera. And that is very hard. And so, and that's what we're here to talk about. So could you give us one example about this kind of change? Like what, what could be one example where it would be hard? It's, it's, uh, so if, if I summarize it right, it would be the first type of change is yes or no. So taking a decision, uh, like buying like a, uh, like a business, right. selling a business, uh, cutting uh, right. employees, um, it could be something like that. Sure. So let's take, I mean, one that everyone uh, we're seeing play out every day and everyone can identify with. You know, you're, you're a large bricks and mortar retailer, right? You know, you're being threatened by not only Amazon, but by online-only retail concepts. They're all chipping away at what you do. Mm -hmm. So basically, what you need to do is not only, quote, transform your in-store experience, right? Um, Which could be the customer service, the product mix, uh, conceiving it more as, again, an experience, not just a, a transaction. So everybody from the store manager to the employees to what metrics you use to the everything's going to change within store. And then you're probably going to have to develop an online complementary strategy as well with a whole set of skills that you don't have. Uh, you know, everything from you know, art of you know, uh, customer engagement uh, online to how do you use artificial intelligence and others to understand buying behavior. I can go on and on. Mm -hmm. So that's one example everyone can look at. You can also look at the company that you and I are very familiar with, right? Which is in the uh, logistics industry where again, we have, uh, you know, our industry is commoditizing. The technology is bringing in both new competitors as well as uh, creating opportunities to be radically more uh, productive. And so, you know, we have 18,000 employees in 60 plus countries and 400 plus locations Mm -hmm. that are all going to have to learn to do things quite differently in terms of how they engage with the customer, how they use the systems. and all that will have to come together in a way that uh, ensures survival. Yeah. So major change, not easy. Yeah. So let's summarize this. So there are two types of change. And right. and maybe we need to kind of clarify that it's not pure on one side. Right, right. It's always a mix, right? So one is, yes. is decision-driven. You, right. you, call it, you call it decision-driven. And one, behavior-dependent. Right. Which is... So, yeah, let me... No. Yeah. Yeah, so let me elaborate on that. So this was this was a big insight, and maybe I'll uh, basically tell a story to uh, yeah. uh-huh. bring yeah. it to life. Okay, yeah. 
So, again, I call this the mistake that has created more ex-CEOs than any other. Okay, mm-hmm. So this is really important if you're a CEO. And it's basically understanding the difference is what you just said between decision-driven and behavior-dependent change. So where did this insight come from? Basically, the year is probably 1992 or 1993. And I was asked to go to Australia and give a series of change management workshops. And at one of these workshops, it was a large financial services conglomerate. And I was invited to a meeting of the top 50 or so people fancy conference room in a very nice hotel on the Gold Coast, north of Sydney. Sydney. And the the group's CEO gave a presentation of the new strategy and vision for this company. It was about 50 pages, I'll say. Uh, And it was in the days when you had overhead projectors. So you had a transparency, we called it, or a floppy, depending on what country you're in, that you put an overhead projector. So anyhow, the CEO gave his, gave his presentation, and his last transparency slide, he picked it up, and he put it down on the projector, and he said, I have just one final word for you after outlining this fancy new vision. You know, we're going to lead the industry in customer satisfaction, creating shareholder value by doing X, Y, Z. I have one final word for you, and it was just do it. And it had the big Nike insignia, and that was their advertising campaign at the time. So just do it. He puts it down on the, pre- on the, on the projector, and he walks out of the room. You know, everyone's applauding. And I always say, I don't know if I would have the guts to do this if he was actually still in the room, because he did walk out of the room after this you know, great speech. And I picked up the slide put it back on the overhead projector and I looked at the audience and I said, just do it. Why doesn't this work? (laughs) And the audience erupted, you know, do what, you know, the goals aren't clear. The goals are conflicting. We don't have the resources. Our, uh, you know, evaluation system doesn't support this, you know, on and on and on about what they were basically saying was this was not the just do it, the decision-driven part of change. You know, to really achieve this aspiration, this vision, this strategy required lots of people in lots of places doing things very differently. It was behavior dependent. And out of that came this insight, this huge insight that for a CEO or whether or McKinsey is really understand what your game you're playing. Is it in the decision-driven world, which is classically big yes-no decisions? Do we open or close a factory? Do we enter or exit a country? Uh, do we raise or lower price? Do we hire or fire this group of people? Big yes-no decisions can have a big impact on the company. And generally, you know, have a skill set that's, you know, very analytical expert. You know, you look at all the data, you look at the pros and cons. You can, once you make a decision, it's a pretty predictable, 
project plan. It's going to take us, you know, whatever it is, three months, one month, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's all very structured, rational. And then on the other side, you have the behavior dependent. These tend to be, again, things that require a lot of people to do things differently. It's all about quality, customer service, speed of developing new products, new innovation. Habits. New habits, new processes. New habits. New, yeah. Yeah. And that requires a very different mindset and approach around engagement, stakeholder management, teamwork, et cetera. And again, it's never 100% one way or the other. So, you know, clearly if you're going to, you know, build a new factory in China, you know, maybe it's 80% decision, but there's a huge cultural behavior component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you get the idea. So I have a question for you about for that CEO, for example, in that in in that room. I mean, of course, it would have been it, it is late in just sharing the strategy at that point. But is there something he could have done better, at least in that room, to at to to have a maybe discussion around it or to 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 know like how to deal with this strategy, et cetera. What, I mean, what, what would you recommend like in, in when, a, when a CEO or a senior leader in a room with a group of executive or uh, people from the organization, how, how to approach it? Right. Well, again, this gets deep, but let me answer the question as best as I can. The first thing, as I said, is you need to, as a CEO, you need to decide how essential, well, first is, you know, is it behavior-dependent change? Okay, let's assume it is. Two, how essential is it that you have the commitment, the deep commitment, understanding, and support of the people in the, in the, in the, uh, the next level down, the team, or whatever the audience? Mm-hmm. Um, if that commitment is essential, and it usually is, there may be some cases there it isn't where there's, there's urgency and you just don't have time and it's, you know, just do or die. Okay, that's maybe 5 or 10%. But if, if you need their commitment, then you got to think about how do you engage and build commitment. And by the way, while you're building commitment, you're building understanding and skills at the same time. So you have to think about an engagement strategy. And it's very simple. You don't need fancy consultants, frankly, to tell you how to do that. A lot of it is common sense. Basically, be be very clear with your group that you, first of all, you recognize that this is major change and you need their commitment. Mm -hmm. That'll go a long way. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you understand this. And second, ask for their input in a structured way. So if I was in a workshop, one I would acknowledge is I would have not ended with just do it. I would have said, it would have been easy for me to say just do it. But I know there's more to it than that. So what I need, what this conference is about is to get your input into what we have to do to make this a success. What could be obstacles? What could be obstacles? uh, What what are going to be some of the barriers? And not only the problems, but you know what are the what are the benefits you see if we do this successfully? What is that you know get people on board? What does this mean for you? Why would it be good for you? 
Did we, miss, did we miss something? Did we miss something? All of these questions, just open-ended questions, will would go a long way towards getting things on the right path if they're done in a genuine way with real listening. So what's, what's one thing, what could be one advice or application for senior leaders, even junior leaders in organization when it comes to this area, to when it comes to change management? Like what's one thing they could apply or uh, use based on what we shared? Well, I'd start with just repeating, be very clear where you are, whether it's decision-driven or behavior-dependent. That's point one. Uh, point two, if you're in the behavior world, think about a new set of you know, approaches and tools that are going to be more engagement-oriented, more listening, more stakeholder management. And that's, that's your leadership task is very different. If you're in that world, so what what could be some description or in one in one or few words or terms for each side of the change uh, the change management like we're talking about? So the, if if we're talking about behavior dependent, what would be like terms that we need to think about or or ways of doing it? So engagement could be one, learning could be another one. What could be other terms we can describe it about? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to be structured engagement, creating teams, a lot of communication, share stakeholder management. You're going to be you're going to be a lot of listening, reflection, learning along the way. You'll be doing things that are going to be building capabilities. It's that whole bundle of of things. And it might be good at saying at that point, people may be thinking, have heard of agile, you know, the agile approach to man, you know, to technology or even to other areas of management. And I would say that, again, it's a, a, for another podcast, perhaps, but agile has emerged as a, a both a philosophy and a methodology that very much helps manage this behavior dependent world right mm -hmm. because it it creates teams engagement short cycle iterations of learning it builds in you know what they call uh, retro uh, um, retrospectives mm -hmm. uh, so you know after every sprint you explicitly debrief our process and how do we improve it mm -hmm. so there's a lot in the agile approach and philosophy that supports the behavior side of change. Now, Steve, let's talk a little bit about leadership. We talked about change. We talked about, we talked about our change management. Let's talk about leadership. You haven't worked as an executive and also as a consultant and observed a lot of leaders. Some of them were very successful. Some of them were not that successful. What, how do you define leadership? And of course, there's so much being talked about about leadership, but it's it's great to to get a perspective from someone who observed and lived it. Well, I'll say this. I've learned something from every leader I've worked with and every leadership situation I've been in. 
So, and every book that I've read, almost every book that I read, except maybe Who Moved My Cheese, which I okay. <laughs> um, I have to say, I have to say, this book inspired me, huh? <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, maybe it's just the title, but seriously. So what I'll try to do is, is uh, try to say something unique, um, which I hope is both unique and memorable and helpful. Mm-hmm. And the way I, when I'm asked to give a, a talk or think about this, and as I think about my own role in any leadership situation, I always say you have to think that actually you're wearing four, and now I say maybe five hats, okay, mm-hmm. as an effective leader. So role number one is what everyone thinks about and frankly is what Harvard, you know, teaches everyone to do, right? You got to be a good business person, okay? You have to have those basic skills around understanding your industry, you know, your uh, company economics. So you have to understand strategy, finance, competition, all that sort of stuff. Um, you have to you have to be good in that world, but being a smart strategist, financial person, whatever it is, understand your competition, great salesperson, whatever. That's not enough to be a great leader or a great CEO. You need to be four. Let's call it four other things. And in no particular order, I'll try to you know, summarize those. You know, mm-hmm. the first. I like to think about is actually you got to be an artist. There's an art to being a leader. In the sense that as a leader, you're bombarded by an enormous amount of data, information, viewpoints, recommendations, good ideas, etc. So the answer to your future strategy is all around you. Mm-hmm. You just got to sort it out. And the way that Michelangelo, when he was asked, how did he sculpt David? He said he took a block of marble, mm-hmm. chipped away that everything didn't, it didn't look like David. And so as a CEO, there's an art. There's all these words. There's all these ideas. There's all these numbers. There's all this data. You need to pull it together in a way that tells a compelling story about the situation the company's in, the industry context, uh, how it's going to evolve, and where you want the company to go. Mm -hmm. And that's an art. And and again, I think from that perspective, like as a CEO, for example, or senior leader, you have a lot of people coming to you, like, this is the best idea, we need to do this. And some other, like from people from other departments saying, we need to do this. And and it's about basically the ability to to take what makes sense most in, uh, in in that situation, not to take everything because everything would become overwhelming for the organization, for the leadership, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It could be you come over, become overwhelming. And so how do you chip away the extraneous things and make them just say, of course, that's just what I think. <laughs> that's exactly, you know, and that's what you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. But it's there's an art to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the next, uh, additional role I'd, uh, I'd speak to would be you're an actor as a leader, as a CEO, you're an actor on a stage 
maybe only 5% of the time are you really on a stage, you know, in an auditorium or whatever. Mm-hmm. But whether you're in a meeting room, whether you're on a Zoom, a Zoom call, whether you're in a hallway, whether you're doing a plant tour, whatever it is, having lunch with a group of employees, you are on stage and you should never forget that. So what, and, what, what does this mean? Like, so what do you want to be careful about or conscious of? Well, you want to be role modeling the types of behaviors, the culture, the mindset that you want in the organization. That's what the organization is going to be looking for, those signals. So you want to be both, you want to be role modeling. And secondly, you want to be making a point. Mm. You know, again, as I say, great actors. When people leave the theater, think and th- differently about some aspect of their life, having mm-hmm. seen that actor perform on, on that stage. And that's what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Out of this interaction, even, you know, I'm on stage, let's say, with you. Mm-hmm. My wish would be that somehow, not only you, but anyone who's good enough to be listening to this, think about the world and their role somewhat differently as a result of, you know, this dialogue. So, and I think it's important to say that act being an actor on a stage does not mean, is not inconsistent with um, being genuine. Exactly. You know, as a leader, you have to be genuine. Okay. But having said that, you want to have a presence and you want to have people come away thinking differently, both about the hard stuff. What's the agenda? What's important in life or in our company and the soft stuff? How do we want to behave? What's so, our this, so, I mean, so this is one aspect, which is looking at the company, about the future of the company, about what we are doing. But I think when I listen to you, there is also, you are saying that maybe also leave them, seeing themselves maybe differently as well. And their role and the impact that they have. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So So that's the actor. We have the business, we have the artist, we have the actor. Okay. And now we have the family therapist. Okay. Okay. So basically, organizations and teams at one level are big families, Mm -hmm. more or less functional, dysfunctional, right? So as a CEO, you're going to be interacting with a number of teams, big and small, who, just like any family, will have a history, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, uh, a good and bad. There'll be conflicting goals, conflicting aspirations, different agendas, different styles. Personalities. Personalities. Communication. Communication. It goes on and on, right? And so as a leader, you got to be aware um, of your role in how do you facilitate those teams, those groups, in a way that helps bring alignment 
resolve the conflicts, get people operating more uh, productively, efficiently, and in a, a more satisfying way. So does this mean avoiding the conflict? Absolutely not. And it also doesn't mean delegating it to HR, okay? okay. The easy thing or to uh, McKinsey or whatever, right? Yeah, okay. No, that's why I say it's it's one of the roles as a leader, right, is to be sensitive to those issues. And again, there's been hundreds of books written on this, right? But to have your own set of tools or approaches that when you see those conflicts, how do you uh, begin to bring them to the surface in a productive way mm-hmm. and get the, it could be an individual discussion, could be a team discussion, whatever it is. How do you get them de-blocked, if you could, I can use that word, and making progress? Mm-hmm. So we have now four, four roles. What's the fifth one? So the fifth one I, have, I added probably in the last five years uh, yeah. as I, in reflection, but it's been out there much longer, uh, which is teacher. As a leader, I think when all is said and done, you, the great leaders, great leaders, are want to pass on not only their own lessons, insights, and whatever, but in a deeper way, create an environment that everyone is learning and building their capabilities. Mm-hmm. And not only from a business point of view, but from a human capacity point of view. Mm-hmm. So, you know, great leaders are, I think, great teachers. And maybe as one example of this, and I'll, I'll use Jack Welch. Now, personally, I have to say, and again, this will be a little bit controversial, um, I'm not a, a great fan of Jack Welsh. Uh, when I look at his whole career, and particularly again when you see what the company left behind, and you know some of the things he did, and, and etc. But you got to give him, <laughs> you got to give him a credit for a lot, and no one's perfect. He's certainly you know a better leader uh, and a more illustrious leader than than I could say that I have been. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that he saw himself as a teacher. And when you read his books and then subsequent to his GE, that he wrote why he was a GE, and then subsequent to his career at GE, he had a passion for crystallizing insights, communicating it in a way that I think has helped, you know, thousands of leaders around the world. And you got to give him a lot of credit for that. And again, no leader is perfect, and you can pick parts of careers which are great and parts maybe not so great. But I think uh, if I had to pick one person who um, everyone knows about who really put a lot of energy into leading, even when he was at GE, mm-hmm. that would be, I think, an example. So I think he has a famous quote which says something like, before you are a leader, it's all about yourself or growing yourself. After you are a leader, it's all about growing others, uh, which which makes this point, yeah. Makes, uh, yeah. And I've heard other executives uh, say very similar phrases like, the way you build a great company is building great people. That's how I like to say. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, your own journey and um, how did you, what has been your source of inspiration throughout your journey? 
your career? Well, you know, it started from that ver- where we started the conversation, right? I always wanted to make, been interested, fascinated in making large, complex organizations work better. So by having that constant in my life, what I was able to add to it and the inspiration was uh, my ability at whatever level to create organizations that were better for their customers and better for their employees. So whether I was just running a team at McKinsey or helping lead an you know, 18,000 person company at Agility, that's what I was always trying to do. And that challenge is always out there. It never goes away. You can always do more for your customers and do more for your employees. And that's, it's very motivating and satisfying. And it and never how, goes away. Yeah. And how have you been, how have you kept learning and growing throughout your career? What What was like one or two ways to keep because there have been so much, like so many changes uh, throughout like this 30, 40 years. So how did you keep up with all these changes and kept growing? Well, again, I think primarily it was by just taking on challenges where the success and the answer wasn't known or, or assured. So throwing yourself into situations where there's a fair degree of challenge and uncertainty. I mean, that's so how you keep pushing, of, pushing yourself. Getting, getting yourself out of your comfort zone continuously. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, frankly, my wife criticizes me for this all the time. And her dad you know, spent his whole career at a big insurance company. Yeah. Uh, you know, got on the train at you know, 7 in the morning and got off the train at 4.55 every night. The career was there. The role was there. You know, it was all very stable. I've thrown myself into unstable situations and that forces you to learn. Now, I would say on top of that, there's two corollaries to it uh, besides getting out of your comfort zone and challenging yourself. One is you, you have to um, not be afraid of failing. You know, you're not always going to succeed. Um, and secondly, whatever degree of success or failure you have, you have to, you will benefit, let's say that, you will benefit from a discipline of reflection and self-criticism. And maybe the third thing I'd throw into that is write it down. Very simple. There's a lot of research about this. Think about what worked, what didn't work, and write it down. And that'll help you sharpen your skills and learning whatever stage of the career you're in. Yeah. So getting yourself out of comfort zone, out of your comfort zone continuously. Do you have any situation where, which you regret actually that you get out of yourself out of your comfort zone? <laughs> you know, many. <laughs> like, uh, to be honest, it's sometimes I regret that I left McKinsey, right? I okay. could have, uh, I'd figured it out. It was, uh, very comfortable on, on a lot of levels. And I basically tossed it all away and you know, started again and uh, decided that I didn't want to die with just having McKinsey Consultant on my obituary. Mm. And so I, I think about that a lot. 
And, uh, you know, could I had greater impact continuing to basically try to uh, reform and improve how McKinsey made this transition from the expert to the facilitated model? That is something I think about a lot. Uh, mm. But in the end, I decided to do it myself rather than consult. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is something we, we didn't touch on, which is the change that you that you worked on within McKinsey. Do you, do you want to just a little bit talk about it? I think it would be great if we can still just give give the listeners and the people who would be watching also the, a little bit insight about what you've done there. Yes, sure. So I'll try to keep it brief. Yeah. So I told you, you know, Marvin Bauer uh, basically said, take a leave of absence. And uh, uh, I did. I came back in 1987 and basically became a founding member of our change management practice, which went through a number of iterations where we were basically trying to do exactly what we were doing with our clients, you know, create a new set of skills and capabilities that was behavior dependent. You know, McKinsey, again, had back then maybe only a couple thousand consultants. They probably have 15 or 20,000 today, but thousands of people doing things differently. And long story short, over time, by I'd say 19, so 87, by, after about four or five years of various levels of innovation, which I won't have time to speak to today, you know, we came to the conclusion that to, this was even bigger change than we thought about, and it couldn't be done within the existing structure of the traditional McKinsey, the structure, the skills, the processes, the rewards of the existing organizational system. So we created the McKinsey Change Center, Mm -hmm. Okay, which was basically a virtual office, a new type of branch, let's think of it or or whatever, that would bring together a mix of traditional McKinsey skills and outside skills. So Harvard, it happened to be some Harvard Business School professors that were doing innovative work in organization, some uh, specialized consultants that were doing very leading edge work in the facilitated model. And so we created this organization that basically could be better structured to do the type of work that we believed our clients needed when they got to that 20% mm-hmm. after McKinsey and all the expert work. Mm-hmm. Now let's do the make it happen. Mm-hmm. It was behavior dependent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we did. We created this, McKinsey Change Center, and that was, uh, I think, hopefully the roots have uh, are still there and still bearing fruit for, for McKinsey, though the center itself is no longer there, but the philosophy, the approaches you know, have spread. Mm-hmm. My final question, Steve, what's the legacy that you like to leave behind uh, with all your work, with all that you've done in your career as a consultant, as an executive? What's... What's the legacy that you like to leave behind? Well, I would again say two things if I can. I mean, one would be a group of future leaders that have learned both from what I've learned and the mistakes I've made and are 
better prepared to go on that mission of creating great companies for customers and employees. And I think that's the main legacy. And to enable that by leaving behind, crystallizing a lot of the insights that we are speaking to so that they're accessible to people uh, in a way that helps them, what I say, avoid avoidable mistakes. We've learned so much over the last 40 years, and it pains me, it physically pains me Mm -hmm. to both see, experience, talk to leaders that are not benefiting from all that we've learned. To be continued, for sure. I think there's so much that we we can and we should maybe explore more. I think it will benefit a lot of uh, a lot uh, le- a lot of leaders uh, and practitioners. So and maybe o- also consultants. So uh, to be continued. Thank you so much for taking the time, Steve. And um, we're gonna continue the discussion in a in a next episode, hopefully. Thanks, thanks, Rod. You learn a lot by just reflecting and having these. Uh, these great questions to to bat back and forth so it's been fun thank you for taking the time being with us